0: Good evening. My name is Simon Levin. I'm here for the uh, Princeton Public Lectures Committee. It's a privilege to introduce a friend, a colleague, and a former squash adversary, uh, Tom Eisner, who's been a professor at Cornell, I think, for 43 years. Uh, Tom's accomplishments are so wide-ranging that it's daunting to try to introduce him. It's traditional to try to talk about his science, but he's going to do that. I I, I want to uh, talk about some other aspects of his – there's somebody in the wrong lecture. (laughs) 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 It doesn't mean anything, Tom. (laughs) Tom is, um, above all, uh, a mensch, that is, a person of of deep commitment to others who translates his convictions into practice. He has indeed, uh, as you will note, put aside a long list of ailments that have beset him in the last few months, and especially the last few weeks, even days, in order not to disappoint us. So uh, I'm very grateful to him for making the uh, effort uh, to join us. Um, He is a mentor who has been beloved by his students and uh, also a tireless advocate for human rights. Uh, He was the chair of the subcommittee on science and human rights of the AAAS's Committee on Scientific Freedom and Responsibility, and he's been a board member or active participant in a wide range of other uh, environmental and other public service uh, groups. Indeed, at lunch today, The only thing he wanted to ask me is, what are you doing that's politically relevant right now? But the reason he has this bully pulpit is because he is, first and foremost, a great biologist. He's a natural historian, a communicator, an innovative reporter, an interpreter of the natural world. His prizes and honors are impossible to list, though he's brought his favorite prize, his wife Maria, uh, with him here tonight. Tom Eisner can give us glimpses into the world of insects like uh, no other person that I know. Uh, We're in for a real treat tonight, learning how to live uh, and love better through the world of insects. So uh, it is a distinct pleasure for me to introduce Tom Eisner and turn things over to him.
1: Thank you, Sai. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for inviting me. Let me first settle the acoustics. Can you hear me in the back row? Can you raise your hands? Can you hear me now in the back row? Great. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been here before. I remember Princeton audiences as exceptionally warm and nice to speak to. My subject is still the old subject. It's bugs. I happen to like them. I don't step on them. <laughs> if you have them in the kitchen, you get a hand lens and you study them and you feed them. And I want to tell you a little bit about adventures with bugs. To begin with, I'd like to introduce you to a friend or well, a bug. This is Sybil, a thrush. Sybil was a friend, a colleague, a collaborator, and a pet for a number of years. Sybil was a finicky gourmet. She loved insects, and she had a way of telling you whether she liked an insect or didn't like an insect. In fact, during one particular summer, when Sybil was at home, I would go out early in the morning and get Sybil's breakfast. I'd have a bag full of vials with me. I'd collect some 20 insects, put them in individual vials. Then I would return. the kids were still in the house, we'd have breakfast with the family. Sybil was in her open cage, where she knew she would get fed, or we had our cereal with bananas or whatever it was. When Sybil liked an insect, she took it in the bill, oriented it, and gobbled it down. When Sybil had a moderate liking for a bug, you could tell right away, she would peck it once or twice and drop it, look at it, maybe peck it again, and then either leave it or swallow it, depending on how hungry it was. At the beginning of the feeding session, she would be likely to eat something that she might reject when she was already 40% full. And Sybil would get 20 to 30 insects at a sitting. But there was one category of insects which our youngest daughter dubbed uh, the pits, which Sybil would try once and not try again. Would remember, even without an intervening presentation for two, three weeks, give her the same insect again, she would look at me defiantly and say, how dare you? This is single-trial learning, we always hope for it, in students. (laughs) Sybil was a wonderful collaborator. At the end of the summer, after having ingested some 500 insects, I had a list. I had a list of insects that Sybil liked, that Sybil didn't care too much about, and that Sybil hated and we suspected that what made civil hate a bug was something about its taste, something chemical about the bug. It so happens I'm interested in natural products, I'm interested in chemicals and nature, and I thought it might be fun to look into those of the category, the pits, to see what there was. One of the insects that was on that list was a firefly. You've all seen fireflies, maybe not quite so close up, Here's the light organ. Now, what do you do when you find that you have a whole animal with an interesting chemical or chemicals in it, and you want to home in on the chemicals? The best thing that you can do is call a chemist. It so happens that there's a chemist at Cornell called Jerry Meinwald. He's about my age. We've been collaborating for some 40 years. So I called Jerry, and I said, Jerry, we've got to work on fireflies. There's something about fireflies which birds hate. Upon which he said, well, get me enough fireflies and we'll see what we can do. Because finding a chemical in a whole organism is literally like looking for a needle in a haystack. So get enough fireflies. How to do that? Well, we entered a new domain, which is very fashionable these days, which is called market economics. We (laughs) we, We took out an ad in the Ithaca Journal. We learned about the laws of supply and demand. We found out that when you pay five cents a firefly, the parents go out and collect. (laughs) And you can go broke in no time. So we immediately changed the ad to a penny a firefly. And on weekends, we entertained the local citizenry of ages 8 to 10, 11, who'd come with their little jars of fireflies and collect their pennies. Well, lest you think that we became the Heinrich Himmler of entomology, killing off all the fireflies in the area, let me tell you that we lucked into fireflies literally by the pound free. It so happens that fireflies are caught in order to extract the light organ because the enzyme substrate system, the luciferin luciferase system is extremely interesting for various purposes, including medical diagnostic purposes. So the front end of the fireflies, like the proverbial styrofoam cup gets thrown away and we decided we'd write the people who were isolating the enzyme substrate system and say, send us half the fireflies. We found out the front end and the rear end is just as palatable or non-palatable, so we collected a lot of fireflies. The two youngsters you see here, the young lady on the left is now a practicing physician. The gentleman on the right is now a professor in Iowa State. They were among the collaborators, quite a few, who helped us find out what it was about fireflies that made them taste badly. Now, how do you proceed to find a needle in a haystack? Well, the first thing you do is you get solvents that have different affinities for chemicals, and you extract the fireflies with these different solvents. Each solvent will grab certain chemicals out of the firefly. You then take small amounts of these solutions and apply them to something that the bird loves. For example, mealworms, little beetle larvae. And you look for the fraction which when added to a mealworm makes a mealworm taste bad. It so happens that one particular solvent was extracting the unknowns. So then you fractionate the fraction and you use different solvents to sub-fractionate the active fraction. This goes on often for a period of weeks or months. But in due course, the chemists called up and said, hey, this is interesting. We found a new kind of chemical in these fireflies. Since they're new chemicals, we've got to give them a name and we call them Lucibufagens. For those of you who have a medical background or still remember your chemistry or are taking your chemistry, these are familiar molecules. This is a steroid. It turned out to be a new steroid because of certain structures associated with this molecule. This ring here is quite unique. What are steroids? Well, you know testosterone, progesterone, cholesterol, cortisone, these are all steroids. And this was a new kind of steroid. So Jerry was very, very interested. We took these compounds, by the way, added them in pure form to mealworms and found they were really yucky. I mean, the bird would hate anything. If a bird ingested a little bit of it, in short order, it would vomit, clearly showing an after effect from the ingestion of these materials. Finding new steroids is of interest to a chemist. So Jerry said, we've got to take a look at other fireflies to see whether nature has variants of these molecules. Now, I'll tell you a little bit of biology of fireflies. The little fireflies, which are the first ones to come out, and your spring is about three weeks earlier than ours, so I predict you will have your very first ones in early June. These are of the genus Photinus. They are small, and they are the ones that had the Lucy Bufidus. Later in the season, another group of fireflies comes in, somewhat bigger, of another genus, the genus Photuris. We extracted for tourists and found that when we first collected them in the summer, they didn't have any bufagens in them at all. But what puzzled us is that later in the season, the males still would end up being free of bufagens, but the females started containing them. And they contained the exact same bufagens as the ones of the other fireflies. To understand what was going on here, you have to know something about fireflies. Well, I had a student in my lab years ago, he's now a professor in Gainesville, whose PhD thesis was to decode the flash language of fireflies. When you see a firefly flying at night and flashing its little song in lights, chances are that this is a male. The male goes about flying, giving a signal, say dum, ta-dum, ta ta whatever the species. And the female sits in vegetation, and when the male comes by, uttering his song she answers with a single flash boom the male locates the female on the basis of this duet and lights and the rest is baby fireflies now what was known before Jim Lloyd tackled the problem is that in an area for example there are often more than one species of firefly and the males have different songs and lights which is shown in this slide which is from one of Jim's papers this particular firefly goes boom, 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 boom. boom. This one goes ta, 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 ta. This one goes ding, 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 and so forth. What was mystifying to biologists is that the females of all these different species answer their own males, and they answer their own males only with a single flash. So how does any one given male know that it's his female that is flashing, given that the females of different species all flash the same way? And this is where Jim Lloyd's stroke of genius came in. What he found is that the specificity of the code in any one species is in the delay between the end of the male song, ba-boom, 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 and the answer of the female, boom. In one species, the female might answer after, let's say, half a second, and another species after a third of a second, and so forth. So that's how the different species sort themselves out at night. Now, what Jim Lloyd showed is that there are certain fireflies that are special. And he coined them very appropriately. He called them firefly from Fatal. And they do the following. When they have sex on their minds, they wait for a species of their own kind to come by, singing the special song that is of that species, and then she'll answer. But when she's hungry... She waits a male of another species to come by and answers him with a delay pertinent to him, thinking, of course, that male now, that he will get a completely different kind of reward. He flies to the female, finds himself caught and devoured. These were the Ferturis females which late in the season were turning out to contain Lucy It's a case of chemical piracy. They get the Lucy Bufigens for nothing by luring males of the species that spend the energy and metabolism to make the chemicals, eating them and getting the defensive material free. Well, this was kind of a fun story and we published it recently. And there were even spin-offs to that story, which I'll mention just parenthetically. When we looked at these leucebufagins, they reminded us of some other molecules. For example, in the next slide, you can see how similar they are. They differ primarily in the little side group that sticks out on the upper right. Oops. This is a familiar drug. It often gets marketed by names like Digitalis, It's a powerful cardiotonic agent. Chances are that someone in this room is actually taking it. It's a chemical that comes from plants, originally extracted from Foxglove. And it occurred to us that our lucibufagens might also be cardiotonic. Cardiotonic agents strengthen the beat of the heart without necessarily changing the pulse rate. So this is for obvious reasons, at the very least in cases of congestive heart failure, a useful drug to have. So we took what little lucidifrogen we had and we sent it to Shering Plough Company and they tried it out. And they said, sure enough, you've got a drug from a bug, which we decided was a wonderful thing for us to brag about. The only problem, it's not better or worse than what's on the market. It has side effects, induces nausea just like digitalis does, which by the way is part of the natural function of the molecule to induce nausea and make the bird vomit. So we left it at that, but we should have gone further. We actually should have sent Lucibufagens to different pharmaceutical companies which have screens for different medicinal agents because, in fact, others did that and found that these compounds also are antiviral. They kill viruses, and patents have been taken out, and work is going on, I would imagine, at this very moment on the antiviral activity of these molecules. But my reason for giving you this story is, first of all, to tell you that It's possible to have incredible fun in this world and still get paid for it. But also to introduce you to the general subject of insect survival. Insects are incredibly successful, and there's lots of them. More than half the described animals, plants, and microorganisms combined are insects. And there are probably millions out there that haven't been described yet. And I would argue that part of their success is their extraordinary capacity for defense. Some of these defenses you're probably familiar with. This is not my arm. We use students for this purpose. (laughs) But the defenses, more often than not, are chemical. If I were to take you on a field trip with a hand lens and we just would systematically pick up every insect we looked at, either smell it or look at it closely, chances are that some of them do chemical things in response to being disturbed as by being picked up. They might give off droplets of fluid from the neck region, They might give off froth from the neck region. They might give off droplets of blood from the knee joints. This is a famous famous blister beetle, the source of a compound called Spanish fly or cantharidin, which is a very powerful insect repellent present in the blood. The animal, when disturbed, releases blood from the knee joints. This is not a fatal loss to the beetle at all. It rebuilds the lost supply and survives as a result. Little caterpillars, such as this remarkably common little caterpillar. This is the larva of the cabbage butterfly, which has little glandular hairs on its back, which, believe it or not, have not been worked on chemically. We've just elucidated the compounds associated with these hairs. All of these are defenses. These are probably particularly against small parasitic wasps, which, if it weren't for these defenses, would lay their eggs inside the caterpillar and kill the caterpillar as a result. This is a little larva, which you will have on your own willow trees now in large numbers, I would imagine within two to three weeks. When you disturb this animal, as I'm doing here, imitating the attack of an ant by biting the leg of one one side, it has a battery of glands on each side of the body, and it diverts little droplets of secretion of very volatile materials, complicated chemistry, For as long as the stimulus lasts, an ant bites, out come the droplets. The ant runs away, the droplets get sucked back into the gland, a very effective and economical way of having defense. Go to the willow leaves, and these larvae occurring clusters, little black larvae, they're really quite tiny, only a few millimeters in length. But take a hand lens, take a toothpick, goose them a little bit, and just watch the little droplets coming out. Even the eggs can be protected. These are eggs, it's an egg of a green lacewing. The eggs are laid on a long stalk. The mother puts tiny little droplets on this stalk. To give you an idea how sensitive chemistry has become nowadays, we took the droplets of 17 stalks, of 17 eggs. Out of those droplets, my chemical associates identified 37 components, chemical components. By the way, this is a remarkable material. You wonder how does the Baby, get out of the egg and then navigate its way down the stalk. It turns out the animal itself is not repelled by this chemical, quite to the contrary. The baby gets out of the egg, stops at this point, eats the droplet, stops at this point, eats the next droplet, works its way down, and gets the first meal in this fashion. It's a combination of guns and butter, as it were, provided by the mother. You're all familiar with wasp stings. Some of you may also be familiar with the caterpillar of a moth called the Io-moth, which has very poisonous, very beautiful-looking hypodermic needles on its back in the form of these needle-sharp spines, which are filled with some very powerful poisons that induce immediate pain and a memorable experience for anyone who tries to fool with these caterpillars. The kind of chemicals associated with these materials can be extremely simple. In 1665, I think it was, an Englishman wrote a paper on an acid juice, still in archaic English, J-U-Y-C-E, from ants. This was the first mention of formic acid. And there are enough ants in this world to have a measurable effect on the formic acid content in the atmosphere. This is a photo I took in Munich, outside of Munich. This is an ant which defends itself collectively with formic acid. Tap the nest and hundreds of ants all shoot formic acid into the air. This can be 20 to 40 percent concentrated formic acid. If you happen to be a mammal with intent to feed on ants, chances are you get sprayed in the eye and you don't stay around. There's a beetle that occurs in Princeton just as it occurs in Ithaca which sprays formic acid at the incredible concentration of 80%. It's not surprising that this stuff works defensively. What is remarkable is that their glandular system is capable of producing such a universal irritant at such incredible concentrations. And how these production mechanisms function is hardly known. For example, there's a compound called hydrogen cyanide, which I'm sure you're familiar with if you ever read an Agatha Christie novel. It's the favorite lethal agent. Well, there are moths that produce hydrogen cyanide. There are are larvae of beetles that produce hydrogen cyanide in Australia. And there are millipedes. And there are centipedes. This is a mother centipede, a geophyllid centipede in Florida, guarding her eggs. She's coiled up around the eggs. You can see the eggs here. If you disturb her, she reorients her body posture in such a way that the ventral side is exposed and then discharges a highly sticky material which clings to the mandibles of ants or anyone else who might try to attack, and is cyanogenic and gives off hydrogen cyanide in large quantities, enough to kill an animal the, uh, the size of that centipede, but not the centipede itself. How does it manage to withstand hydrogen cyanide? There are ideas, there have been mechanisms postulated, but the actual mechanism is unknown. So there's a chemical world out there, which I would say is interesting for no other reason than it's entertaining. But there might just be more to it than that. And chemically, there can be discoveries made which are startling. This is a ladybird beetle, not the kind that you're most familiar with, which are usually red. But this is a relative of a Mexican bean beetle, the squash beetle. The pupa of this animal, like the pupa of most insects, is unprotected in the sense that it can't run, can't fly. It's sitting there anchored. It's a sitting duck. So we've decided that looking at sitting ducks and seeing how they're protected might be an approach worth following. So here's the pupa of this particular animal. And what you can see is it has glandular hairs all around the surface. Individually, these glandular hairs are shown as follows. They're easily milked. You take microcapillaries and pick up these droplets, and when you have enough fluid, you call Jerry Meinwald again. You say this time it's droplets from the hairs of a pupa of a beetle, and when you have a good postdoc like Frank Schroeder and Jerry's lab, you may get chemical answers. It turns out in these droplets, there are thousands of chemicals, including chemicals with necklace patterns that are most intriguing which include the largest known ring compounds in nature. And they're made in a combinatorial fashion quite automatically from three simple building blocks. There's a term that's quite fashionable in chemistry these days, it's called combinatorial chemistry. Well, chemists per se didn't quite invent that. It turns out nature practices it in some situations. This was chemically, to the chemists, quite an interesting find. One of my favorite animals, which I'll allude to only briefly, because I recall lecturing about it at Princeton before, is a beetle called a bombardier beetle. This animal sprays a very simple mixture of compounds called benzoquinones, just a simple benzene ring with a couple of oxygens attached, and an R can be a hydrogen, a methyl group, or an ethyl group. Bombardier beetles spray, and they aim their spray. Here's a beetle shown in lateral view. This is a dab of wax that goes to a fixed wire. The reason for this is you can't just tell a your beetle to sit quietly for a portrait, so you have to anchor him. We use dental wax, which can be easily taken off, so the animal regains its freedom afterwards. And what you see here is the beetle is being pinched as if it were an ant, and it's bending the tip of its abdomen forward, and it's firing directly at the forceps. The entire discharge lasts only from 10 to 30, or at most 70 milliseconds. Now, for those of you who are photographers, if you try to photograph an event that lasts 50 milliseconds, it's very hard to press down the shutter at that very moment. So what you do is you talk to the beetle nicely, and he takes his own picture. And This is done as follows. When the beetle fires, and I have to tell you something about a secretion. The secretion, by the way, is at the temperature of boiling water. It's 100 degrees. And the reason for this is that he doesn't store the quinones as such. He stores chemical precursors in separate glandular compartments and mixes these within a fraction of a second when he's disturbed and generates a chemical explosion that shoots out the quinones with a popping sound. So if you've got a microphone above the beetle hooked onto an electronic flash and you work in semi-darkness, you stimulate the beetle, He fires, makes a popping sound, the pop releases the electronic flash, and you take his own pictures. That's the picture that you see. Let me show you how well he aims, or she as the case may be. Here is a front leg being disturbed. Here is a hind leg being disturbed. Well, if your enemy is small, it pays to fire and aim fashion. And what is the biggest enemy of anybody little in this world is other things that are little called ants. And the discharge mechanism of the bombardier beetle is pr- primarily a defense against ants. And let me show you how remarkably well he can aim. These are close-up pictures now. I'll tell you what we're looking at. This is the rear end of the beetle. Here's the hind leg of the beetle. Here's the surrogate ant. And here's the aimed discharge. Very precisely toward the forceps. Incidentally, the secretion arrives on target and it's still boiling away and generating quinones at 100 degrees centigrade. Here's another pair of pictures. The ant is now biting the base of the hind leg. The abdomen, tip of the abdomen is, here's the tip of the abdomen with the glands open. It's aimed forward, and the discharge comes very precisely to that place. The entire surface of the animal is mapped out and reachable by discharges. Bombardier beetles have been around for a long time, and I would predict may outlast us which wouldn't bother me one bit. (laughs) Some insects have passive defenses. They're very hard to spot. If you go in the field, chances are you're missing more insects than you're seeing. And one of the reasons is that many of them are extraordinarily camouflaged. Let me give you a feeling for the remarkable degree of that camouflage. This is a moth that flies in Florida. It's nocturnal like most moths. And the daytime, it's resting place is, as far as we know, invariably a certain kind of plant. It sits on the flowers and matches these with exquisite detail. This is an egg. One of these is an egg. This one is an egg, among dew droplets on the leaf. This is a caterpillar which at night feeds on leaves, petals, and the daytime rests, head, coiled up in the center of the flower. Quite remarkable, on this bush, which grows in central Florida, it's called a rosemary bush, no relation at all to the rosemary mint plant. There are two caterpillars. One is a little green caterpillar that imitates the leaves. Another is a caterpillar that imitates the twigs. Both of them are one and the same species. Different seasonal forms. One of them imitates one, one imitates the other. A more extraordinary example of that was actually work done by Eric Green, who I believe was a graduate student in Princeton. This is, by the way, a member of the same genus as Eric Green's species. Eric Green's species he was able to show turns into what it eats. If it feeds on the catkins of this oak tree, it looks like a catkin. If it eats on the leaves, it looks like the leaves and the petioles. I mean, the implications developmentally of this kind of connection between diet and visual outcome is quite extraordinary. How many of you up your hand can see a caterpillar in this picture? If you were birds in search of caterpillars, you'd go hungry tonight. The caterpillar is sitting right here, and it dresses up as a flower. Let me show you a caterpillar in close-up. Can you see it now? It extends from here to here. If I undress it, which is fundamentally rather impolite, It looks like that. It cuts little pieces of petal with its mandibles, sews them on with silk onto spines on its back. Here it's beginning the job. It's been cutting little pieces and sewed them on the back. It's an inchworm. It can turn its neck in virtually any direction. Here are the spines on its back on protuberances. The silk and strands sew on the piece of petal on these places. Incidentally, he doesn't have flower vases there, so the petals wilt. So he replaces them in due course with fresh material. And this goes on until he looks in this fashion. And then he hides again on the plant. The hiding isn't perfect. Incredibly enough, there is a wasp that hunts these, finds them, kills them by stinging and lays their eggs in it, puts them in burrows. This was a pure luck photograph I took in Arizona of one of these wasps, Amophila, in the process of carrying away one of these imitation flowers. So here's an instance of an insect making use of plants in some fashion or another. This business of using plants for protective purposes can be taken to extremes. And let me give you an example. This is a so-called assassin bug. It's a predaceous bug, it's a relative of stink bugs that belongs to that same big group called the Hemiptera. You see him here eating a click beetle in Arizona. This animal has a very special relationship with a plant. The plant is one composite plant, the daisy family which goes by the name of camphor weed, a common roadside weed in the southwest. Some species of the genus occur in the southeast and occasionally get as far north, I would imagine, as southern New Jersey. If you look at a leaf or any part of the vegetative structure of the plant, of a camphor weed, you see that the tiny little droplets on the surface. These droplets are the product of glandular hairs which in close-up look typically a stalk, a cup of glandular cells, and then the product of the secretion of these cells. This is highly sticky material, resinous, and very powerfully aromatic. The chemistry of this was done with collaborators at the School of Forestry in Syracuse, led by Mill Silverstein, and whoever by perception of the nose, named that plant camphor weed, was a good nasal chemist. Because it turns out camphor is one of the products produced by this plant. Camphor is, by the way, one of the oldest known insect repellents. And it's not surprised that there should be plants using it for that particular purpose. That's probably the function of camphor in the camphor tree also. Well, this bug, this assassin bug, is totally immune to the action of these chemicals. It flies to the plant and harvests the droplets. It does this by spending minutes and minutes and minutes on end. It scrapes away with its front legs until it picks up dabs of this material, then transfers it to the middle leg, then uses the hind leg to scrape off the accumulated material from the middle leg and pastes this on the ventral surface of the abdomen until the whole ventral surface is chop full of this sticky material. Only the female does that, and there's a good reason. She uses this material to protect her eggs. When she lays eggs, she's a prodigious mother. They come in groups of upward of 60. Every single egg, when it emerges from the female, is individually coated with this stuff and glued to the next egg until a whole raft of these eggs is plastered together, each one surrounded by this repellent material. We know of no enemies of these eggs. We know of no ants that can handle them. We know of no mites. We suspect that it's also antibiotic. And there are materials other than camphor associated with it. There are larger molecules which turn out to be new terpenoids shown here. And it was a fairly exciting project. It's most of it is still unpublished, but it turns out the story doesn't end there. When the young come out of the egg, they make use of this material. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a insect maternity ward, but I'm going to introduce you to an insect being born. No one is in attendance. They squeeze themselves out of the egg by swallowing air. Here's the little one getting its first look at the world. At least it doesn't have to listen to CNN. Somewhat further on, somewhat further, and eventually it is free. It now undergoes tanning action. Its skeleton hardens and darkens. And then first thing it does when it's fully ambulatory is go to the edge of the eggs and scrape away at the material that the mother put on the eggs and got from plants. And what does it end up looking? And it's looking as follows. Here's the head-on view. This is the right front leg, and this is the left front leg. And what does it do with this material? It is a hunter. It is a tiny little hunter. Thanks to the glue on its front legs, it is able to catch prey, which it might otherwise not be able to hold. In the laboratory, you can feed it Drosophila. This gives you an idea of the size of a fruit fly relative to him. And he's also protected because he's intrinsically repellent by virtue of this material. But he sits in ambush, and when something moves close by, he sees it, he pounces forward, grabs it with its sticky embrace. So that's a case of the use of plant material for defense. I mean, we do the same thing after all, when our kids get sick, we buy fungal products such as antibiotics, we turn to nature for help. It's amazing how many organisms do this using microbial products or plant products. I think I'm ready for the second tray. Fear not, it's not a full tray. This is a moth on which we've spent a considerable amount of time in the last 20 years, and I want to tell you just a little bit about it. I first got interested in this moth, which is quite pretty, because I saw it fly into spider web. And instead of fluttering and trying to get loose, it just closed its wings and came to rest. I expected that this would be the end of it. The spider, of course, was alerted by the impact, the vibration in the web, the impact made by the landing spider. But the spider pounced on the moth, momentarily halted, and then started a remarkable behavior. Started cutting the threads that were entangling the moth one by one by using its palps and the mandibles in combination until the moth fell free. The moth fell halfway to the ground, opened its wings, and flew off. That's the kind of thing you either file away mentally or you write in your notebook. And you don't necessarily react to it right away, but there's something about that moth that spiders don't like. This is in itself not publishable because the editor will write you and say, why doesn't it like it? You follow up. But I saw it again on a subsequent year, and then I decided to try out a few things, and I collected some of these moths, put them in individual vials, threw them in different webs. The fate was always the same. Some spiders pulled them out of the web and dropped them, others cut them free. There was obviously something yucky about the pits, in this case as well. So one of the things that we knew about this moth, here by the way is a spider in the process of cutting the moth loose. One of the things that we knew about this moth is that as a caterpillar it feeds on a very poisonous plant. Legumes of the genus Crotillaria, which were famous because they contain some complicated molecules, this is a tongue twister, perlizidine alkaloids. I'll just refer to them as alkaloids. When cattle inadvertently browse on crotillaria, they may die. When something kills cows, it generates research money. So there was a great deal known about the chemistry of these plants. Well, we thought that maybe this is a case, like the monarch butterfly, of a lepidopteran which gets its defense by feeding on a poisonous plant and sequestering the chemicals from the plant, building them into its own body. We knew from published work that the alkaloids are at highest concentration in the seeds. The leaves have a certain amount, but the seeds are most enriched by these compounds. You see, these are the plant's chemical defense, and it makes very good sense for the plant to put more of its defenses in the babies, in the seeds. Well, this moth, which can cope with these alkaloids, goes for the parts of the plant that are richest in alkaloids, namely the seeds. The seeds are also richest in nutrients, so it's the best stuff to eat. In fact, the caterpillars make, this is the caterpillar of Udathaisa, and Udathaisa is the name of the moth. The caterpillars of Udathaisa make holes in the pods. Remember, this is a legume. Get in there, feed on the seeds. They're incredibly hygienic about the whole thing when they have to go potty, They extend their rear ends out the same opening they were in there, and they defecate. Well, we were, at this point, incredibly lucky. It turned out that there was a semi-synthetic diet based on pinto beans, not crotillaria beans, that this moss also ate in the laboratory. And the pinto beans were totally free of alkaloids, so we could raise moss that were entirely free of alkaloids at the same time that we raised some that were full of alkaloids. And we could feed both kinds to the spiders. So here are some in the laboratory feeding on the regular pods. These, if we analyze them chemically, turn out to be chock full of the alkaloids. And here are some feeding on the alternative diet, the control diet, which is free of alkaloids. And we ended up with two kinds of moths, with and without. We took them into the field, gave them to the spiders, and the results were dramatic. The ones that had alkaloid were absolutely spared. The others were reduced to a small cluster of remains. This kind of result, by the way, we call statistically significant in biology. (laughs) And we published it, but the story didn't end there. When we analyzed the eggs, we found that they were full of alkaloids meaning that the mother was protecting her offspring with some of the chemicals that she had gotten from her plant. But it turns out that the father also contributes to the defense of the eggs. And how is this possible? It's possible because when the father mates with a mother, he transfers a large sperm package to the female, which contains not only sperm and nutrients, but alkaloid, thereby enriching... The female with alkaloid of the male's origin, alkaloid which the female in turn used to put into the eggs together with her own. So it's a case of biparental protection of the eggs. You can do experiments with ladybird beetles and show that the eggs are protected by these alkaloids as a result. Eggs laid, for example, by females raised on pinto bean diet, mated with males raised on pinto bean diet, are totally defenseless. It is only with the alkaloid that they fail to fall victim to attacks by the beetles. So it's at mating that the male transfers alkaloid to the female with its large sperm package. Mating in this moth is quite an extraordinary feat for the male because he transfers on average upward of 10% of his body weight in material to the female. Here is an isolated sperm package of the kind that male lunaticizer transfers to the female. And there's alkaloid in there. Now, let me tell you what's really interesting. What's really interesting is that the female does not mate at random with males. It's not a first-come, first-served kind of arrangement. She mates preferentially with males that are rich in alkaloid. And why is this to her advantage? Because the more alkaloid the male has, the more he transfers to the female. But how can she tell prior to accepting him that he is rich in alkaloid? It turns out the male tells the female how much alkaloid he has. And he does this chemically. It's obviously to his advantage if he can bribe the female to gain access to the female's DNA and thereby have offspring of his own fathering. Well, how does he tell the female? Or what kind of test does the female put the male to? The male has two reversible brushes at the tip of the abdomen. He only uses these when he dances around the female in close pre-copulatory interaction. The female attracts the male chemically with some straightforward pheromones that she produces from one set of glands. She drifts the Chanel downwind. This brings the males upwind. And the male, when he's close up to the female, dances around her, extrudes the brushes, and attempts to brush these against the female. This is a photograph taken in the lucky moment here fraction of a second, where the male is averting the brushes and striking the female. It's by way of these brushes that the male tells the female how much alkaloid he holds in store for her. And how does he do this? He does this with a chemical which is produced on the brushes, a chemical which turned out to be new in science, which we call hydroxydanidal Let me remind you of the alkaloid and take a look at hydroxydanidal Hydroxydanidal is essentially part of the alkaloid, made smaller and more volatile. The animal is actually producing the signal associated with the brushes directly chemically by degrading a small fraction of its alkaloid load. And you can show experimentally that the more alkaloid he has, the more hydroxydanidal he puts in the brushes. You can also show that the female favors males, which have a lot of hydroxyl on the brushes. So it's a case where the male rags, if you wish, or is put to the test, if you wish, but where he announces the magnitude of his nuptial gift, something that the female puts to use for protecting the eggs. But it turns out that the gift helps the female as well. The female is constantly losing alkaloid because she produces eggs throughout her entire lifespan. She replenishes her alkaloid by mating often. Not necessarily using the sperm of each male, but mating often. We know exactly how often they mate in the field because there's a residue of each sperm sac left in the sperm receptacle in the female. She mates on average with four to five males, but with as many as 10, 11 in the population I just worked with in January, upward of 20 males. So she's enriched with alkaloid. We could also show experimentally that a female who's deficient in alkaloid is protected the moment she's through a mating session. The alkali she receives from the male, diffuses through the body, within five minutes is deployed for defensive use in the female. So it's not just the babies. I mean, she's looking out for herself. In the male's point of view, he's protecting the fuselage as well as the eggs. It all makes very good old-fashioned Darwinian sense. I can stop at this point or beg five more minutes of your indulgence and tell you one more bug story. You want one more bug story? This is not my photo, but I've seen this phenomenon in the tropics. This is called puddling. Have any of you ever seen puddling butterflies? It's a remarkable phenomenon in the tropics, but it occurs around here. The only thing is we don't have the abundance and diversity of butterflies. Puddling is exactly what it says. butterflies or moths at night, aggregating at the edges of water sites, drinking. And you know how butterflies drink. They have a long snout, which they uncoil, and usually go to the nectaries of flowers. But when they're puddling, they go to wet soil, and they drink. I had a student in my lab called Scott Smedley, who did a PhD on puddling. And what I'm going to tell you now is basically work that Scott Smedley did. Scott decided to use a moth which was a prodigious drinker. A little moth by the name of Lephysus septentrionis. This is the moth. This is its front end. Its front end is dipped in a puddle of water, which is not seen in this high contrast photo. And what this animal is doing is squirting a jet of fluid out of its rear end to a distance of... Upward of 40 centimeters. Well, when Glufasia drinks, it drinks. It drinks for two and a half hours, and every four to five seconds squirts a jet of fluid out of its rear end in this fashion. If you want to know what this amounts to after two and a half hours, (laughs) we call this the universal fraternity aliquot. Why drink that much? (laughs) Well, it turns out that there's a shortage that many Lepidopterans have because they feed on plants. And plants are sometimes short of sodium. What these puddlers are doing, and they're almost without exception always males, is gathering sodium. And what do they do with that sodium? They transfer it to the female when they mate. And what does the female do with that sodium? She puts it in the eggs and gets junior started with an important iron, which long ago, our ancestors abandoned when they left the ocean, came to land, but did not abandon the dependency on. So this is the way a herbivore makes up for a chronic deficiency, not only for himself and herself, but also for the young. And the egg is the beneficiary of this a remarkable phenomenon, again involving getting a chemical from outside on the part of males, transferring it to the females for the joint benefit of protecting or endowing the offspring. How do you drink with a long, narrow straw at the rate of a gallon per second, which is the equivalent that this little moth drinks in human terms? Well, you can't. I mean, you can't drink a milkshake with a long straw like that either. Your muscles start hurting on the cheek. Well, this moth, glufysia does not have the typical long proboscis that characterizes Lepidoptera. It has a little beak, which is actually more complicated than that in this scanning electron micrograph taken by my wife. You see what this beak looks like. It's really a snout with a cleft through which the fluid is imbibed, A cleft that is protected by an interdigitating framework of spines which act as a filter to keep detritus from being sucked into the gut. If you pump fluid through the gut at that rate and you're trying to extract an ion, you've got to have an enormous exchange surface It can't possibly do the job. Well, it turns out that the midgut of the male has such an exchange surface in the form of a highly folded internal lining, something which the female lacks. Ladies and gentlemen, at this point, I think I can stop. And the only message that I have really is, isn't it a shame if nature were to disappear? Think of the information that we lose. Think of the entertainment value. Think of the drugs from bugs that we might lose. But first and foremost, think of the beauty and of the entertainment value. In the words of one of my favorite artists, Moreau, the smallest thing in nature is an entire world. And that's all I have to say. And I thank you very much for your attention. You have
0: Tom has indicated he's willing to uh, answer a few questions, so uh, um, the microphone's there, so uh, if anybody has any questions, please raise your hand.
1: I'll repeat the question Um, Does the assassin bug have natural predators the Adults probably do even though they are themselves chemically protected by defensive glands the eggs. I don't know of any But that can be just absence of data rather than proof our whole experience is find a defense that seems to be perfect, somebody's cracked through it. Udifaisa, the moth that protects itself with alkaloids. Its prime enemy at times could be cannibalistic conspecifics. When there's a shortage of alkaloid on the plant because the seeds all got eaten, they can turn to cannibalism and get alkaloid from eating their own eggs or the pupae. In other words, there may be times where being low in alkaloid helps you, because you're not as appetizing to your con specifics, so wherever we look, we always end up finding an exception. Look at that caterpillar that's protected by looking like a flower. Sure enough, there's a wasp that hunts it, finds it, parasitizes it. So my bet is that there is an egg parasite on apiomers. We just don't know it. Yes. Does that wasp? Does that wasp? look, take advantage of the special insect vision, which is ultraviolet sensitive to find the caterpillar. That's a subtle question and it's a very good question. Insects can see ultraviolet, which is a domain of light that we're blind to, but they can see. And flowers are adorned in ultraviolet, which is their way of speaking to the pollinator, not to us. It turns out that that caterpillar occasionally makes mistakes and Turns petals not in the normal orientation that is on the flower But in the reverse orientation which may give it a ultraviolet mottling that makes it stick out from the plant However on the golden rods in which I showed most of my photos that doesn't apply But on another flower it does but the answer is it could be that they you have here an evolutionary Interaction, or rather, an interaction that is in, the case, in a state of evolutionary flux that's just happening now, which is an ideal system to work on. If you're interested in evolution, and if you're not interested in evolution, you shouldn't be in biology. <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- there's a lady that was before you, and then I'll come back to you. Yes. Can you tell us anything about the relationship between the who gets to each other and to temperature change in the fall? Uh, nothing that you want to rely on as being the absolute argument. The question is whether I can say anything about the chirp of crickets and their dependence on such things as temperature so that it makes the chirp oscillate in the fall. My recollection is from work of Walker's and Gainesville, that the pitch of the song varies with temperature, but so does the sensitivity of the ear. So that in fact, as the pitch changes, the sensitivity of the ear remains attuned to the maximum output, and they, so to say, remain on the similar acoustic wavelength. If there's anybody who can give more precise information than that, on chemistry I feel a much better footing, but it's a great question. But that information is in the literature. A book on insect bioacoustics will give you the answer. Do ladybugs, ladybird beetles, or ladybugs, depending what you want to call them, deserve their reputation of being grain eaters? They do, and they can overdo it. They have been introduced probably more than any other insect deliberately in the United States. There is one species called Harmonia axiridis, which is now taking over the northeast. You can collect them by the hundreds. They go into your homes and so on. Nobody's done the calculation, but... They're always hailed for eating aphids, which they do. But if you eat enough aphids, you start affecting the ant population because the ants depend on the honeydew. And the ants are your friends in many, many ways. So to introduce without really looking into the full spectrum of consequences is a risky business at the very least. But I'm afraid that much of what is happening about exotic species is not the consequence of deliberate introductions but simply of unwanted visitation which is a consequence of borders being opened everywhere the second most important reason for extinction of species now is exotic species yeah <laughs> The question is today, I, if I heard it correctly, whether the larva of the bombardier beetle produces formic acid. And there were another component you added that the larvae of bombardier beetle is parasitic. Yeah. In fact, the larvae of bombardier beetles worldwide are parasitic in remarkable ways. Most of them parasitic on aquatic beetles. To my knowledge, the larvae of carabids in general don't have chemical defensive ejectable glands. And the one of the Bombardier Beetle, I'm virtually certain, doesn't produce formic acid.
0: Yeah? With the moth that uses the brushes to advertise the money,
1: the boards, do you know what keeps that signal honest? Like, is there something that prevents so a male that doesn't have a lot of moths, just a greater proportion of their research? So are there losers in this mating game? Is that the question? <laughs> what? Why? And I rephrase the question ever so slightly, why isn't the word full of huge male utithesis, all bragging about more and more chemical? We're not really sure of that answer, because we know that there is a high ratio of low producers in nature. But there are losers and there are winners, and we have evidence for that, and on average, the male utithisa is larger than the female, which is highly exceptional with Lepidopter showing that there is a selection for the larger males there. And I should add that the males that contain the most alkaloid are also physically the largest. And to get a little bit ahead of the story, it's a little risky to talk about your graduate student's work when it isn't published yet. But this graduate student has just shown, and it's part of the PhD thesis, which is about to be written, that large size, which correlates with high alkaloid levels and success in competing for seeds in the larvae is heritable in this species. So what the female sexually selects for is good genes. This is a fairly uh, hot topic these days in sexual selective strategy. Thanks for the question. Yes. You're uh, talking. What you talk about with fireflies. Anything known about the sort of
0: what the signal is that induces the timing, of the clock starting on the female, as to how long
1: she's going to wait? And in general, are a lot known?
0: You, you talked a lot about small molecules, but is there a corresponding amount known about the receptors
1: and the biochemistry of the, of the insect? Absolutely not. One of one of the it, there's a fair amount known, I don't know whether you heard the question, how much is known about the neuronal concomitants of chemical communication in general on in insects? And the answer is surprisingly much when it involves pheromones, virtually nothing when it involves defensive chemicals. One of the bioassays that we use regularly is a decapitated cockroach preparation, which lives on for weeks, And you can stimulate with defensive chemicals from other insects and the animal will scratch, the side stimulated. And the delay to onset of scratching is a measure of the irritancy induced by the chemical. What the sensory neurons are that mediate this detection of topical irritants is totally unknown. You can go to the vertebrate literature, you can learn about the free nerve endings in the retina that are responsible for detecting irritants but a comparable sensory network that is specifically evolved for detection of noxious topical applied chemicals. It's just not known. So anybody who needs a PhD thesis, there's a good one. In human warfare, measures, induce countermeasures, induce counter countermeasures, et cetera, and a fairly rapid time sequence. Uh, in, in, in this world, does it ever happen Rate, and you might be able to tell that when you' have exotic species introduced so that we know when something happened, and then we can see if the rate of would it's, a, it's a great question and I would say that the best answer is not nearly enough is known. We know from introduced species that they sometimes sit in one particular area like the European earwig for generations and then suddenly they break through. Fire Ant did the same thing around Mobile, Alabama, suggesting that there's some abrupt genetic change which quickly takes hold and gives them an edge in the new location. But one, uh, I'm not the person to answer that one. I just don't know enough about it. But it's a great question because over long evolutionary times we have evidence that there's tremendous reciprocal interaction that results in reciprocal evolutionary pressures. Udathaisa in itself, the little moth that feeds on the alkaloids, is remarkable. Why does Udathaisa tolerate the alkaloid that it feeds on? Well, it turns out the alkaloid, which kills cows, remember, is really not toxic as such. It is made toxic by enzymes in the liver of the vertebrate, which are designed to detoxify. But they actually make mistakes and make them more poisonous than they are before. So if you somehow can shield that alkaloid from that kind of enzyme in your body, you've got a non-toxic precursor manufactured by plants specifically as an answer to the enzymatic defenses of the animal. The moth has taken it one step further. There's one person in the audience here who can probably tell you biochemically what it has done, but the moth simply does not transform the alkaloid into the toxic version, and then uses it as a taste distasteful agent. Dr.
2: Eisner? Um. Speaking of vertebrates and their response to toxic materials, and you started with Sybil, the thrush, who basically could either accept or reject uh, the food items. If she was in an early stage of hunger, she might accept more than have more latitude. Uh, You might remember, it's so nice to see you again, 25 years or so ago I was studying raccoons at Liddell. And you stepped into my lab. I was studying the washing behavior of raccoons, the so-called, unlike the thrush, the raccoon goes through a whole bout of head shaking and manipulation when it encounters a salamander or a frog and so on. And you, as you stepped out of the lab, and I want you to update your remarks, if you will, 25 years later, you said to me that probably... I think it was 70% or so of the prey items that they might encounter are toxic. How do you feel about that now?
1: I missed just one part. 70% of what are toxic?
2: Of the, of the food items that a skunk or a fox or a raccoon may encounter are toxic. Although the raccoon, unlike Sybil or unlike the skunk, has the ability to rear back on its hind legs a little bit and manipulate with its forepaws. And wash um, uh, I think uh, I can show that, uh, you know, they they are able to eat things that otherwise would be passed up by a lot of others.
1: Yeah. Did I really say 70%? I'm sure. I'm asking it if you
2: remember. No, no, no. How do you feel about it now? 20,
1: Twenty years ago, I was bold and played with numbers for which I had no <laughs> evidence. <laughs> I think that it's a fairly safe bet that more than half, If I were to, I'll stay by this statement. If I had to make a list of insects that are chemically protected and a list of insects that are not, the latter would be the shorter list. Whether it breaks at 50, 50, 70, 30, I don't know. But let me tell you something interesting about your raccoons. I was bold enough to make a statement that animals like a raccoon, no, animals like a millipede, which is very well protected. I mean, there are millipedes that raccoons eat that have... Upward of 5, upward of 5, upward 7% pure them. I mean, these are incredibly poisonous materials. Your raccoons can handle them. And I made the statement that if we wanted to find out which insects are protected or which arthropods are protected, which are not, let's look for which arthropods are intermediate hosts in parasitic life cycles. The ones that are favored as intermediate hosts are likely to be edible. And we find chemical defenses in those that are remarkably free and these complicated parasitic life cycles. The first thing I found out is that, uh, somebody who was breeding, uh, I think it was, uh, which is a very, well it's a kind of dog in Pennsylvania and the dogs were dying and they were dying because they were licking millipedes. And picking up parasites from the millipedes, so the millipedes did have parasites. And who was the actual adult host of these millipede life cycles? You raccoons. What do they do with these millipedes? They ripe them in the sand and or in water until the millipede is given off all the defensive secretions, and then they eat them. So the answer is is that. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, I regret that I did not give credit in the Bombardier Beetle pictures to my close collaborator, Daniel Anna Sansley. He's an engineer, and we did these pictures together. We had the time of our lives. I mean, you can imagine when you got your first negatives back and you saw those spray patterns and the Beetles. But I use very conventional equipment, except for one. I use 35 millimeter cameras, I use uh, macro lenses, I use rings to extend the distance between the lens and the camera. Uh, I regret the day where I went to expensive cameras, I should have stayed with my old practicas and exactas and pentaxes, but I'm stuck now with expensive cameras. And I spend a lot of time waiting for something to happen, but the one instrument that I really think is absolutely essential is the one that gives you the magnification between the 35 millimeter camera and the scanning electron microscope, which is that elusive domain of 1 to 20. And there's an instrument which costs money, it costs upward of $20,000, which is a photo micro photomicroscope. It looks like a stereo microscope with a long tube and the camera above on it, but it is in fact no more than a camera with an extended tube going to a lens. It splits the beam. So that you are focusing and looking with two eyes, which is an infinite four-letter word saver. Because you can really spend there all the time watching and then pressing the shutter. That I couldn't do without anymore. Uh, I travel everywhere with it. I have my own personal instrument at home. Uh, Anybody who tells me the action is in outer space, I say, get yourself one of those instruments and just look. Buy your grandchildren not a $20,000 instrument, but a hand lens is a good start. Forget about the computer for a while. (laughs) And uh, I think I should quit. I think so, too.